We're on. Okay. Hey, guys. Come on in. Get comfortable. We're here to entertain you for an hour. A couple quick rules. One, there are no rules. Two, if you have a question about the first rule or if you have a question, see rule one. Second, if you're easily offended, you might want to leave because Haney's ornery today. <laughs> and Larry might be ornery too. Always ornery. He's tweeting about it right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to start at the opposite end. Larry, we're going to let you give your a quick bio. This is an interactive panel. My view of this process is we're here to be of service to you. So if you have questions, you want to call bullshit, whatever, during the process, stick your hand up and we will stop and try to address uh, your question on the fly as opposed to later. So we're, we're here to really try to be helpful to you if we can be. I mean, I'm going to seed with a few questions, but then we're going to open it up quickly. Okay, Larry, it's up to you, baby. Take us home. Hi, uh, Larry Marcus, Walden Venture Capital. We do sprout stage investing, so it's not seed stage. We want to see that you've actually developed something, want to really see that product. kind of starts with the demo and want to feel that excitement either directly or in whatever your target market is. But really like the music space because it's a great passion center. People spend a lot of time with it, and it leads to a lot of other really interesting exciting commerce and interactions. The companies in and around the music space that I've done are Pandora, Soundhound, Bandpage, and my most recent deal is Boombotics, maker of the Boombot speaker. They're in the main room, and they're cute little social ultra-portable speakers. That's us. Hi, I'm Lewis Gersh with Metamorphic Ventures, a recovering entrepreneur as well as attorney. First job was with UMG at its founding when they bought Rising Tide Entertainment to form it and then quickly turned left into a partnership with AOL to launch a digital media company and never looked back. After I sold my company, started Metamorphic Ventures with two partners. We do seed stage and the stage before what he was talking about. So we're kind of you know two or three people, a PowerPoint and a dog. Sometimes they don't have a PowerPoint. And we help develop them, lead the round, get the product live in market, generally get monetization going, usually for a handful of customers, million bucks or two run rate. We focus on digital media services and digital commerce services. Our strategy is what we call transactional media, and it's really leveraging the rising tides of both. And it encompasses desktop, mobile, and very specifically also oftentimes connecting to the physical world and retail. I'm Pat Keneally with IDG Ventures. IDG is a big media company. We see the music business as, as uh, any other media business. We invest in Series A companies, a little bit later stage than the two guys to my left. We've been investing in music businesses since the late 1990s in companies like Spinner.com, Shazam, and the hardware side in companies like Olive Media Systems and in services like Bandpage and TuneUp. So we're active music investors and looking for new deals. Hi, everybody. My name is Haney Nada. I am a partner at a firm called GGV Capital. We're here in the Bay Area. We have about billion six under management, so we tend to invest in later stage companies. So B to D rounds, we typically invest anywhere between five and $25 million in portfolio companies. I focus on the media side, so content creation, content distribution, content monetization. Invest in companies like Pandora after Larry, SoundCloud, Bandpage. We also have a large office in China. We're in, we're in two companies in China in the media space, YY and Tudo. Tudo is very similar to YouTube here, very, very big platform in China, and been actively looking at the music space, 
music industry because I think it's uh, actually fantastic opportunity right now. And I'm Mark Montgomery. I'm your last minute moderator. I'm also going to participate a little bit. I'm the founder of a, f a company called Flow Thinkery, which is a uh, a think tank based in Nashville, Tennessee, which actually does have venture investing and uh, very much uh, of the, the core focus of the entire city really is music. And so I, uh, also, I'm also a recovering entrepreneur, built a company, sold it, bootstrapped it, bank financed it, venture financed it, exited it, became an EVP, unwound it, all that shit. It was really fun. <laughs> and I took, a, I took a little right turn, went to work for a venture firm thought discovered I there was a hole in that business and uh, certainly not these guys but uh, a lot of a lot of them are operating on a, an interesting model that might have some opportunity for reboot and I'm building a, a company around that uh, we're nine months old and uh, I'm pretty happy with where we are so I'm a little bit of a wacko uh, in all this what I'd like to do is is to talk a little bit we had a we had a little discussion beforehand although uh, as Brian just said oh, the venture guys will be late they think they know everything so what I'd like to do is to, to talk a little bit about the, this idea of the music industry really being kind of a bad business model, and how, how, can, how does that get made good? And because uh, Haney's ornery and it was his idea, we're going to let him talk about it first. Okay. Uh, raise your hands. Get you guys involved here. Uh, how many people watch sports on TV? Just nearly everybody in the room. How many people listen to music in this room? Uh, nearly everybody in this room. What do you value more, music or sports? Oh, interesting. So here's some stats for you guys. This is directly from the government. The average American spends 14 hours a week listening to music. Take a wild guess what the average American does in, for sports. Three and a half hours. That's per week. Three and a half hours of sports, 14 hours of music. Take a wild guess how big the sports industry is. Almost $500 billion. How big is the music industry? Worldwide, it's $70 billion. What the fuck? What are you guys doing? <laughs> hey, they're, hey, they're, what, what they're you, stealing what, it. They're what are you guys it. doing? We have 5x more engagement than the sports industry, yet we can't get our fans to pay for our stuff? That's fucked up. That's really fucked up. And it's your fault. It's you your fault. Right? This is the music industry. It's all, all our fault. How do we... We have people that are engaged with us, yet we cannot monetize. And we're talking about pennies because we recorded music. The, the new stadium, San Francisco Stadium, is coming up, right? The 49er Stadium. $150,000 to $250,000 license per seat. People are paying that. And then $1,000 <laughs> per ticket on top of that. That's a super fan. That's called a whale. Do you guys know what a whale is? Yep. Go find them. Figure out business models to find them. There, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Any of the rest of you guys want to jump into that one? <laughs> You're right. You were feeling ornery. I guess I feel like a pussycat now. <laughs> and was that 500 billion? Did you say? It's okay. almost five, 441 billion. Okay. In 2011. Interesting. Okay. Seriously, anybody else want to comment on that? I would also add that you know, whining is a long-term art form in the music business in that when Gutenberg first started printing sheet music, it was, oh my God, the business is going to hell. And then piano rolls, oh my God, the business is going to hell. And then tubular records and flat records and you know magnetic tape and tape cassettes and CD-ROMs. It's always something in the music business. And those of you who think you're disrupting the biggest disruption ever, 
should realize that, you know, the suits at the record labels and at the stereo companies and whatever have been dealing with this for 300 years. Well, one thing I want to add to that is, is when you look at the, the, that transition in the Gutenberg revolution to the internet revolution, the first attempt to protect intellectual property that was printed on a page from the time that the press was instituted was 300 years later. So standards always lag. Everybody's always worried about the standard. How do we, how do we protect our property? The, the, the reality is, is the market inevitably just determines how to protect it. And fighting the market, legislation and litigation of market share is a really crappy business strategy. Just ask US steel companies how that worked out for them. There's tons of opportunity in all of that disruption, to your point, the, the question is, is where to go? So to that end, and I'm going to throw this down to Larry, describe the abstract layers uh, of the music business in, in terms of services. And where are the, where are the, the, the you, you made this comment, there's a lot of white noise still left. There's a lot of, a lot of places to go and, and develop products. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, the music industry, when people usually think about it, they just think about somebody buying a CD or buying a track. But if you actually go back more to where Haney is coming at it from, which is the time spent around it, it's actually even greater than the 14 hours because it starts all the way on education and kids loving to play instruments and all of that passion, all of the creation, all of the gear around creation. That whole part of the market is going to change dramatically. I mean, why isn't every single piece of musical gear going to be controlled by an iPad that's connected to a CPU and the device. Just think of that extra power. Why isn't all of that going to be networked? The discovery aspect of it. There's more and more stuff, yet it's actually harder and harder to find something that's actually good. And that's, you know, that whole discovery curation layer, I mean, that's part of why, you know, radio has been working so well. But there's also search, you know, how do you actually find it? You know, why is even Google search in music is very broken? You know, that's why you have all of these really interesting blossoming apps. And then consumption is really shifting as well. I mean, look at the money spent on the audiophile market. I mean, look at what people spend on cabling to attach their stereos. You know, people spending an extra $100 on a cable because somebody tells them it sounds better everything from the low-end speaker market to the high-end speaker market to all of the gear surrounding it. Again, another really big piece. And then, of course, there's the whole band desire. I mean, my daughter plays in a band, and they are basically doing it for the exact same reason that everybody does it, which is you just love music, and then you want to play, and you want to have a gig, and nobody wants to monkey around with all the technology. If you're an artist, you want to be an artist, and you want to have the venues filled, and you want to be discovered, and you don't want to deal with any of the other stuff, that whole part of the ecosystem is really broken. And live music is incredibly broken. If you want to go see a show, how do you actually know where to go? Once you're at the show, the bands are still trying to throw paper at you. There's just a ton of stuff going on. I think the, the music as unit of exchange is becoming a smaller and smaller piece, and I, I don't like the transition of songs from albums. I loved albums. I'm, I still have vinyl, though I haven't had a player in a long time, but I look at them 
and I long for them. Uh, they're just not very convenient. But that's happened. Songs are the unit of consumption. It's a it's a ninety percent paycheck cut right there. So I think it's really about all of this other stuff, the infrastructure and the services, the creation, and, and on and on. Just out of curiosity, how many in the room are entrepreneurs looking for money? Uh-oh. <laughs> Boys, we're going to get mobbed after. How many of you are pure techs, my favorite? The musicians of the coder world. And then how many of you are, as, are artists? So that's our audience, boys. I want to talk about, to that point, Larry, and one thing, if, if as we go, I try to keep these in big buckets. So could you go back and give the bullets of the four or five areas you just described that you think are ripe that have lots of white space opportunity? Well, that was you know education, creation, discovery, consumption. And I think band you know, is remaining wide open. And you know, band services. Yeah, and live music. Band services live. Yeah, okay. Any of you guys want to add to that or, or challenge that before we move on? I just asked Larry when he was looking at his records, are you really just reading the liner notes? <laughs> are you looking at what's on the cover? I think, seriously, the, the points... Well, the album art, actually, is amazing. Better. And it surely rock, was. I love rock posters. And, and that art's gone, I mean, for a great part. I think we look at it and we said, in, in, that, in the music industry, you have... It is one where there is an incredible history of an installed infrastructure. And a lot of times we see the seed-level entrepreneurs coming forward and saying... Uh, we can bust that infrastructure. It doesn't have to be there. And and probably one of the biggest r risks as we're looking at that is what can be busted and what is entrenched that you kind of want to ride on the rails that are there or you're not going to really displace them. Um, we have the same thing on payments and we call it, you know, when the entrepreneur is doing it, we call it waterboarding Aquaman, right? <laughs> you you want to go torture them? They're actually going to enjoy it. You're going to make more money at the end of the day anyway, so embrace them as your friend. Figure out a way to work with them um, and, and leverage what they have for distribution or revenue already. Um, there is a lot that's broken. There's a lot that's there that you can, you can draft off of and make them your friend. And Larry, just to be clear, uh, most people get in bands to get chicks. Just, that's, you're kidding yourself if you think it's anything else. What, what do I tell my daughter now? Well... <laughs> Or dudes, <laughs> or dogs. Can we talk a little I bit mean, about? I think that 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 does that does give you a fifth thing. Yeah. Which is if you have distribution, you know, consumption, creation, education, compensation, is an area that it needs to be fixed for a lot of this to work. Yeah. Agreed. So one of the comments that got made, and I, I totally agree with this, it, it amazes me, and I even even today just overhearing the pitches in the hall, it, it it's it's sort of you know classic comedy this idea of how many people are starting the same exact business it's just got a different name you know it's like Pinterest uh, mashed up with Facebook and iTunes I, I think I heard that 20 times today just walking by people so you want to comment a little bit about the, the concept of homework you made this this commentary that the business has been around a long damn time and it seemed to you that would be not a bad idea to actually figure out how it works before you try to build a business can you talk about that a little bit in terms of how hard it is to get to see you how important it would be that you actually came with an idea that mattered? Any of you guys can talk about that. Well, our, our doors are always open. We see on the, on the order of 1,000 companies a year in our conference rooms. 
and no. you know to to break through that clutter you need you know an interesting idea and you need to to demonstrate to the to the group whose time is finite that there's been some homework done and the 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 thing i generalize about music entrepreneurs is that much more than let's say tech entrepreneurs they don't know some of their own history and some ideas that have not worked six or seven times before you know, end up on paper in our stack in a way that would never happen in the enterprise IT market or the telecom market or, or whatever. So you know, the, the, the high concept of, of what people are doing does matter because the, the demands on our attention are really large. It's, it's tough because some of the great ideas are actually have been done before. Like when YouTube came along, there was like 50 companies that were like that. It's just they nailed the subtlety and their initial acquisition. So it's Absolutely. kind of a weird fine balance too. So one of the things I think you guys may have caught in my opening conversation or talk, if you will, monologue, <laughs> monologue, I'll monologue. call it in my monologue. We'll call it a monologue. Rant. Is you know, we see a lot of ideas. So there's, there's a, about going after market. And there's two types of market. There's the market where you're going to go after an existing market and just take away share because your product is cheaper, better, faster. Frankly, for us, especially in the music space, that's not that interesting. If all you're doing is you want to move record sales or album sales or digital download sales from one place to another, that's not that interesting. Because that, that's a really hard business, competitive business, and frankly, the margins aren't there. If you're just trying to do better merch, if you're trying to do better ticketing, that's not interesting. What I'm really interested in is taking out, figuring out a way to get that $70 billion to a $440 billion market. And that's, those are new revenue streams. And so if you're coming to pitch a new revenue stream for artists, for music, that sounds great. And I tell you, one of the areas that I'm most focused on is the concept of the fan and the super fans and the whales and the minnows and the dolphins. That to me is where I think a lot of the money, the untapped money is. I'm a super fan or a whale in the music business. I love going to live shows. I love listening to fresh music. I love meeting artists. I also play a lot of video games. And I've been known to spend hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars, on video games every year. How much do I spend on music? A fraction of that. Why? Because there isn't an opportunity for me to spend that. Figure that, out, figure that market out. There's a lot of people like me out there. I'm sure some of you guys are in the same boat. That's, I think, where the big opportunity is, where the billion-dollar company is. When you're starting a company, there's two ways to think about it. It's either going to be a billion-dollar business or, if it's going to be, then, or it's going to be a lifestyle business. If it's a lifestyle business, don't take any money from us. We're the devil. We're the stuff shoots. Do not do that because that's going to get in the way of your lifestyle business. But if you're truly building a billion-dollar outcome, think about it. You're going to come pitch me, and you're going to say, I have a billion-dollar idea, and here's my idea. That to, us is, that, to me, is interesting. But if you're just going to build a business that's going to generate $20 million in revenue and have 5% net margins, that's a great business to buy a house and have a nice little family and maybe a lot of parties. But unless it's a billion-dollar idea, it's hard to take venture capital dollars, especially in the scale that we're talking about, the 20, 20, you know, 15 to $20 million. So that, that's kind of something to think about when you're starting a company or your existing company. Do you really want to take venture capital dollars? Mm -hmm. Because we're going to put you on a different trajectory where it's a, either going to be a one or a zero. Well, and so to that end, how many of our panelists, Larry, you're already raising your hand because I already know you're in this deal, are in Bandpage? Hmm, three out of five. So talk about your vision for that. So, so you don't put money in something unless you think it's a billion-dollar company. What is that company? It's a simple, simple, simple message. Fan and band. Engagement. That's it. 
How do you engage with your fans? It's as simple as that. Yeah, when, when somebody brings that kind of an idea to a group and can back it up you know, with five subsequent slides, not a song and dance, but just with some very basic data, it gets very, very quiet in a venture capital conference room. I use the example of Shazam. When people came and said, you hold up your phone, it tells you what song it is. They had us right there. That could be very large. Mm -hmm. Larry? I like it. Okay. <laughs> He's in. So, He's so let me let me ask another question, and and this is uh, this is just from my own knowledge. So, Bandpage was built on really built on another platform initially, in, in the form of Facebook. And I don't know you know what your view or disposition towards Facebook is, but it, my view is is that building on the back of somebody else's platform can be dangerous. Can you talk a little bit about what what that strategy was around? We're going to launch here, but we're actually going to migrate. And you look at the, the current state of the business, it's significantly different than it was. Sure. Talk about that and how you guys are involved in that. Sure. Well, look, Facebook has been the fastest growing social network and platform. And it was a really obvious place to, to just kind of be where the fans were. And that's where, where Bandpage was initially built. They obviously have not had a lot of third-party value built in that ecosystem, which is kind of a separate problem that Facebook has because it's not as stable of a platform. They're always changing things, and they don't have an active you know, platform and ecosystem for those third parties. So the company wanted to diversify away from it. The plans were in place, and we think that actually it was a great focusing event to really dig deeper on engagement and other factors I think if that kind of thing actually happened later, and what I'm talking about is Facebook moved all pages to timeline. So when you went to a band or a brand, no one could actually go in and customize that experience. Haney was actually in a company called Buddy Media that did the same thing for brands and had a great exit you know, right around that time. And this was a... <laughs> And, <laughs> and it was a big shift in the music traffic on Facebook is actually way down from that point. And the bands are reminded yet again how important it is to kind of be cross-platform, and that's part of the, the band page value proposition. So I think if this kind of thing happened later on in the company's history, it actually could have been a company-killing event instead it was a company-focusing event. And many of you have been through companies from you know birth through exit you know it's a very non-linear experience across the board no matter what the company is and these sort of things happen and it's how you you know also adapt adapt and react just a word of advice to the folks in the room who are artists and I mean no disrespect to my brethren here, but these guys nor Facebook nor any of the large-scale platforms give a fuck about you or your community what they care about is monetizing their businesses. So always make sure that you understand that you need to go where the fans are. You'd be a fool not to. But you need to own the data sets. You need to control your own destiny if you're an artist. And you need to be able to pull your own information out and move yourself around. I, by the way, I have an idea to pitch you. You talk about the, uh, the whales. I, I, know how to, I know how to monetize those bad boys. So uh, I just I want to strongly disagree with that. I, okay. mean, I think that... The, the whole point is to actually empower bands to own their online presence and, well, I'll give and, you to, help, and to help them make money because at the end of the day, 
It's all about empowering revenue streams and lifestyle for the bands. And by doing so, that's the best way that relationship grows. It's a ultimately a value exchange. Well, so I, I don't disagree with that, but what I, I guess my point is is that when the, that business falls into the hands of somebody, remember a little company called iLike that had built a really cool thing and then it got <laughs> sure. upended and destroyed? Look, I've had my space pages for my bands and I like page. I've had yeah. all of these different things and that's part of the learnings and what people know, which is why you want to be, first of all, have your own website. That's my, wanna, that's my point. That's right. right. Have, have your own.com. And that's part of the beauty of the platform. You can centrally manage your right. online presence from one place also, including your own website and other right. places. So I, I want to, I mean, I don't want to just sound like a money-grubbing VC zealot. But you're about uh, to? But no, but look, mu- music is an art form. And I, I respect that. I mean, there's only a handful of VCs on the planet that invest in the music space, by the way because they all think it's a bad business and they all want to away. The reason why I want to invest in music is because I actually like the art form. I just think it's way under monetized. And you know, I take a lot of my experiences from my other industries. You know, I think I talked last year about it, the gaming space where there's a casual game online that's kind of a war uh, over water, warship game. And a guy spent $76,000 to build his base in a span over three months. Holy shit, $76,000 on a base, a virtual base with little army men running on the screen, not even physical, right? $76,000. That's a super fan. The CEO calls him up, hey, are you okay? You spent a lot of money on this. Is this for real? It's like, yeah, I love this. This is great. All my friends are really, really envious of my base, and I can kick anyone's ass. (laughs) Fast forward a year later, another guy just spent $136,000 in the same game. And... These guys are, this is their hobby. This is their life. This is what they want to do. This is what they like to do. I don't feel bad for them. That's great. If they want to do that, they know the whole thing. Everything is transparent. How you spend money, how you make money, and so on. That's transparent. How many fans, do you as an artist, the artists out there, are you able to say, you know, this, this super fan likes me and he spent, gave me $136,000 for my art form? Painters do that all the time. Why can't you do that? On that, on the back of that, from Mary Meeker to Pandora, one of the business models that's been kind of that VCs have been so harping on for so long has been an ad-supported model, right? And the kind of the concept of display advertising for in terms of content monetization, specifically speaking for demand gen platforms within blogs or within that so that's sort of the aspect of the in- industry, not necessarily from the artist industry. The concept of trying to build a business for music blogs or whatever that is on 0.1% engagement rates just seems fundamentally wrong to me. And in terms of monetizing content, what do you guys see as the pathway to building a demand gen platform, i.e. a blog, to a level that it becomes a sustainable business? As in response to that. You must be a journalist. I, I write for Forbes, Quora, and I do BD for Stipple. Yeah. <laughs> There's a awesome talk going on next door that I wish I was at. It's about crowdfunding and some of the examples that have happened in crowdfunding and how much money has been raised by artists from crowds. That's just one example that we've seen. There's a lot of innovation. I'm not smart enough to figure out what that model is, but there's examples that are coming up, that are showing up, that are fantastic examples. People sp- willing to spend, I forgot what Amanda Lambert, $25,000 for a concert in their backyard or a, a guitar show in their living room. 
people there are crazy people out there with that kind of money that are willing to do that for artists yeah. go and find I, them and I think also that that in media businesses business models come around and come back again so it's not that there's some future one that we haven't picked I, I, the example that you know, really jumps out at people is in the 1950s nobody paid for television it was an ad supported medium today virtually all Americans pay a cable bill it's a subscription funded medium so you can have one to the other and back again and then a mix and whatever in, in these things. So there's, there's not a magic one thing. And if you talk about writing about music content, the, the, the you know, Rolling Stone magazines of the world that have a million subscribers are pretty darn tiny when you compare them to all the people who listen to music. But there are also hundreds of music bloggers who make good livings doing really, really focused newsletters for the Cognoscenti and the Whales. You know, advertising startups in the media space, if you're a content-driven startup, it's a very difficult thing because in order, Tim Westergren spoke today and uh, he highlighted correctly that if you're going to build a media business, you need incredible traffic before you can effectively sell it. So your effective CPMs are going to be minuscule, you know, 50 cents, 60 cents, 80 cents, you know, sub a dollar typically until you can reach big enough scale where you can invest heavily in salespeople who can start selling, you know, the five, 10, 15, $20 uh, CPM levels. So just too much money to pursue a pure, you know, media business for a startup unless you're going to be really, really good at raising money. And, and the, the, pa the passion that you're hearing from us as people who invest in the music business is based on the fact that, you know, an app is not a company. Right? An app is an album, and a team is a group. And a couple of groups together are a label, and a couple of labels together are a media company. And to get to a billion dollars, the music business has historically you know, bunched into relatively few big players. So if you hate that end of the business, you, know, you should be an artist, not you know, a, a, a record label. Well, there, haven't been, there wasn't advertising on records for the first yeah, hundred years. Hi. Um, I actually have the same question, but I'll phrase it a little bit more specifically. You're not a journalist, um, are you? A no, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, when we're talking about monetizing content, could you address what you think, what strategies you think are going to be successful as it pertains to the fact that we now have more connected devices, we have to focus on mobile, have to focus on making it adaptable for smartphones? And it's really sort of the same question, but focusing on that, that challenge now. And in addition, if you could speak to uh, the video content as well. Yeah, happy to, happy to jump in there because probably 80% of our portfolio focus is B2B or B2B2C and especially stitching between desktop, web, mobile and into, into traditional physical retail. Um, music may be one of the few exceptions as a vertical on a, on a number of areas that we believe you need to watch out for. Um, so number one, broadly, you know, you take all online ads as, as a size of a market, and generally it's about the size of Amazon's top line revenue, to put it in perspective, one e-commerce. So if you're not bundling in commerce with ads, um, we believe you're putting yourself at a great disadvantage. And then secondly, take, take that and extrapolate out all of e-commerce is about the size of uh, 40% or so of Walmart's revenue, one company that's offline. Y you move a little into the offline or physical goods world, 
or in a physical environment where consumers are purchasing off a mobile device, you're talking about four trillion of consumer spending, right? So we look at opportunities that really take advantage across that spectrum. And, and one of the biggest things I think inherent with the music industry, while so much has moved digital, that's good. I think the historical perspective that, that we've been talking about on the panel, one of the downsides in music is that something we call in a market the velocity of obsolescence. And in music, I think probably faster than virtually any other vertical of, of type of product, as consumer fickleness to industry to be afraid of adopting something, yet the consumers desire to adopt it, but then change their mind is incredible. And, and that has left wreckage faster than in virtually every, any other type of consumer product business, especially moving into the digital world. So we look at that and say that the things are, are, can become obsolete faster and in a bigger way. That's a danger zone, right? So how to try to, how to, try to hedge against that from just the media sales, adding commerce, connecting through uh, ubiquitously. I don't even like the term omni-channel because it denotes specific channels as opposed to just ubiquitously across all of it. Well, and then I, that also applies to the art. In other words, here today, gone tomorrow, baby. You know, uh, there, are, there are not very many, you, there just aren't very many slots for the princes of the world or the Kenny Chesneys of the world or the Jimi Hendrix of the world. You, you look at... Can't believe you just put those three in the same category. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Nashville. I have to work a country artist in somewhere. It's, don't you know that's all we do in Nashville is country music? But I think that that's... I, it's I really agree with Haney again. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you are ornery. It, it, it is thinking about, you know, to me, the, all of the plumbing is all great, but what goes in the plumbing, you know, the, the thing about music, the intangible and the thing that you can't put on a balance sheet and you can't really quantify is the connection from the ear to the heart. The, that's the power. So when I, when I talk to people who get distracted by, well, I need this platform, I need to Twitter, I need to blah, 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 I'm like, why don't you learn to sing and write, right? <laughs> why don't you make great art first? Because everything else is kind of taking care of itself. You know, the plumbing is being built in a way that allows, and we talked about this idea of fan, fan to band, yep. right? In a way that was never possible. You know, even five years ago, compared to where we are now. And we're really on the beginning of the continuum um, in terms of, you know, spa storage space is going down. We're getting better and better devices. We're getting, uh, we're, we're I, God knows what my 10-month-old daughter will consume from a content perspective or how it will be done. But what will, what will not change is that connection, that human connection of, of a great artist singing a great song. That never changes. I'm, I'm going to try not to be subtle on this point. Content doesn't matter. It's your fans that matter. <coughs> Don't try to monetize the content. Monetize your fans. Yeah. That's the big problem, I think, frankly, with the music industry. <coughs> the NFL has figured out how to monetize their fans. There's multiple ways they monetize their fans. You know, we haven't figured that out as an industry yet. We still focus on the recorded mu album, that one track that everybody loves. How do I make more money off that one track? It's about the fans. And then you, when you said, how do I monetize content, ECPM, it doesn't matter. It's the fans. Get a lot of fans, and, and I'll show you how to monetize them. So I'm going to jump, okay? Um, I want each of these guys to describe um, the, the three things, if you were to put it, you, you only get three and no descriptors, one sentence without a comma on each one of them. The three things you look for when you walk, when an investment walks in the door. I'll, I'll go first, because maybe we'll do it in the life cycle too. 
It might be interesting. We can do whatever right. you want. So I think that was your time. You're done. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's jockey first for us, mm-hmm. um, and close second is product, and then what we call the MF rule, which is when they describe their product and you tip your head and say, that motherfucker's going to kill it, right? And that speaks to market size and how aggressive they are. You win. Does anybody else want to follow that one? <laughs> okay, so if you are going to pitch these guys after, you just got the three things you need to talk about. And if you talk about anything else, Larry will literally turn and start tweeting on you. <laughs> He's too freaking busy, right? So, so one of the things that, that to me I think that, and, and we talked about it a minute ago, do your flipping homework, right, first. Second, it is, I agree, it's always a bet on the person, you know. The, the best investments I've ever made where the guy, you can just smell it on him. They cannot be stopped. Jay Sider, the first time I met Jay, I was like, oh, okay, well, this guy's going to crush it. I mean, he was just on fire. You, and and it's, it's amazing to sort of see it, but it's very rare. We call it, and looking at the founding team, there are a lot of things you can add to a founding team, but the initial founding team, we look for that sales-driven person. They have the enthusiasm when they walk in the room to will things into being and make people follow them. Put another way, we... we have another rule that we, that we call them. Some people can sell ice to Eskimos. We want people who can sell them ethnic isolation and poverty in the same meeting. Those are the people you want. <laughs> I, I want to come hang out at your firm. <laughs> We've got some good rules. All right. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to tweet that. You're right going to apply that. <laughs> so um, uh, let's talk about, and Larry, we'll start with you. Investment strategy, investment theme. Can you just give people some guardrails so that, that they can not sure. bug you when... Sure. Well, I really, for me, it just always starts with a great demo and a great product. I assume you have these sorts of great capabilities, and we'll try to do the due diligence to verify that and figure that out. But great people fail all the time making the leap from concept to product, and I view a great product as just a certain kind of magic that is actually pretty rare to find, just something that's just simple and you watch people use it and they go, oh yeah, and it just fills a clean spot. Because I think the, the whole benefit now of, of all of the social media and all of the mobile phones is just simple word of mouth adoption. You're, you're always on this thing, it's with you, you're communicating with people all the time and uh, you just can't spend money on marketing in a consumer business anymore. You need that viral adoption. And so I think the product is the best, cleanest form of marketing. And if some of you have probably approached me and I always just say, send me the demo and I show them to different people in my office. And if people say, this thing is great, then I'm thrilled to take a meeting or I'll try it. And if it's like, uh, don't really get it, seems like 50 other things or can't describe it, then it's just not worth the next steps. So if you've got a demo, please wait to show it to me until you feel like it's you know, really showing that core technology or capability where you can say, wow, that's awesome you've been able to do that. Who's next? Do you want me to repeat the question? Have you forgotten it? No, I don't necessarily need revenue and certain kinds of traction, you know, which would be different you know, if you're going to go in and see Haney, he's going to want to see that you're getting it in the marketplace on a different level. Correct, Haney? Correct, Larry. Thank you. 
I think some of this is also also negative in that some of the people with the dumbest ideas have equal passion to the people who have the great ideas. Yeah. So it's don't come without your passion, but also don't come without your great idea yeah. and make that great idea visible to us early because the the venture capital due diligence process of us checking and second checking market sizes and market shares and growth rates and all that stuff, we will get to. But we only want to get to it seven or eight times a year because that's the number of investments that we make a year. And so we'd much rather have the top of our funnel be really wide, see ideas and decide what to, to focus on. So, so especially in this field, the demos speak for themselves. They sound better or they don't. They find the music or they don't. They you know, have subscribers or they don't. It's, it's an easy thing to demonstrate compared to firewall security software. So do the demo. To me, it's actually a fairly easy process. I'm, I'm not that smart. My, these guys are way smarter than I am. But I need to see points that I can extrapolate to higher, higher points, points of proof, whether it's the product adoption curve, whether it's uh, other products that are coming into the market, whether it's references from customers that are actually paying you dollars or money. Uh, to us, that is probably the single most important thing when we're looking at a, an investment, especially at the stage we look at. The other thing, the other on a theme perspective, on a seg market segment perspective, if you think about content creation, all the tools that create content, interesting, but those are suboptimal outcomes. Usually they sell from $20 million to $100 million worth of value when you actually exit the company. Uh, and the best ones may get to half a billion. Um, so that's an interesting market, but it's a hard market, and it takes a long time for you to prove it out. So the content creation piece. Uh, content distributions, it's a huge market, lots of players, lots of complexity, a worm's nest, and it's really, really hard to get my head, head around it unless you can make it very simple and under, I can understand why the content distribution strategy is going to work. Content monetization, that's where a lot of innovation is yet to be shown. That's the area what I'm talking about that I'm really excited about is the monetization part. How do you take a fan? and monetize. That, so those are the three areas. Uh, so if you think about where you're gonna start your company, think about where your company is today, figure out how you get the optimal exit value in each of those scenarios. All right, we have a question here, and we have a question here, I think we gotta defer to the lady, she was first. Uh, by the way, is this helpful at all, or is this just a bunch of horseshit? Okay, it's good, all right. So Almost. I live in London, I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm curious about the difference. I did come from here, but I've been in London for 25 years in terms of things like boring things like valuations and whether it's better to have angels or seed sprout investors. And can you talk about things like that when you're talking about a you know initial startup team, is friends and family better? Or is a relationship with someone like you guys who invest in the seed round better? Is there an advantage? And these startup valuations in the UK, we, they always look for profit immediately. I understand here that's not necessarily the case. They look for market share. I'm just curious about some of those. Well, yeah, I, I can start with this. Go. Yeah, you're the you and I are the recovering entrepreneurs. We can throw these guys under yeah, the what's, bus. What's really nice is that the the seed funds have really developed and built a professional base that's set up bumpers and curbs that are reliable. And, and quite frankly, I don't think a, a really good idea, sales-driven entrepreneur and team, should be raising money, say, from doctors and dentists or very much even from their family. And 
we're seeing much less of it, right? Maybe a couple hundred grand to help them get off the road because they, they have no room on their credit cards. But that first round has become really stable of between one and $2 million, typically uh, at least two, uh, if not three, seed funds or strategic investors um, that band together. And then usually uh, four to six uh, highly qualified of industry gatekeeper experienced angels who are professionals. And if there, there are, in, in our mind, there's two different types, right? There are types that are easy money and cheerlead for you. And then there's teams that are extension of your founding team. Um, and that's the approach we take. We're there to make introductions for you, sit in those initial meetings with you, help shape it, introduce you to gatekeepers across the board, um, a, a number of which are investors in our fund. That's just how we roll, how we work. It's it's become a stable environment where that is that is kind of the first bus stop of the norm um, before you you move up in the the fund status where we believe that gives you a much better shot. We we help you identify the potholes. We help you accelerate the business, right? Um, and then the goal is hopefully before that money runs out, say in 12 to 14 months, you've gotten a product initially out to market. You've got a handful of test customers um, or some usage tracking. Uh, in a meaningful way that will be attractive to the next step. Um, I, I would say, and, these, and, and Larry can answer, it's a rarity and usually only when there's a repeat stud type entrepreneur that's gonna jump the shark off the seed round and just go raise a big A or God forbid a B. Those 1990 days of, of, of 1999 days of washouts are gone, right? I'll, I'll approach it slightly differently, which is I would just, make as much progress as you can on as little money as you possibly can because the money ultimately has a very high cost to you you know emotionally physically just your flexibility and um, raise that money from the most knowledgeable people that you possibly can if it's just somebody that casually liked you and they're just handing you money that would not be a good thing I mean it might be end up being a good thing for them but the odds are that it's not going to help you or be very validating or help you really build your business. Yeah, I would add that if, it, it, and Haney said it a minute ago, fundamentally, if you want to build a lifestyle business, don't take money from a professional investor, period. If you want to build something to sell it, then take the money because actually it, it, uh, it, it actually creates pressure that helps move you down the continuum. Just try to take money where there's more than money, right? Expertise, market knowledge, access to capital. There's a bunch of things rolled up in that. There's a lot of money that isn't worth taking. These guys are, uh, I think, exceptions. I'm, I'm not in any deals with them, but my sense is, based on our conversations, that they're smart money. There's a lot of dumb money, and a lot of dumb money will actually make your process a lot harder uh, and can actually slow you down. And it's striking in the music business where you can say, you know, there was Elvis and Colonel Parker. You know, angel investors can own a piece of you forever, and they have the good and the bad. And there are great and passionate and committed angels. But as a class, they behave in a little bit more divergent ways. You can also go back in music history and say there are the major labels and the minor labels. And each of those behave in slightly more predictable, maybe more sharky ways, but in certainly predictable ways. But that hierarchy of, you know, get an agent, 
get some bookings, sign a label, get a record deal, you know, and so forth. That's that that process has been part of the music business, you know, for a long time. And your fundraising should be the same. But each time you bring somebody new onto your train, you really need to do, um, you know, some pretty thorough reference checking. They'll do it on you. You should do it just as hard on them. Yeah. Question back here. Thanks. Um, my question is about whether, to what extent do you consider the kind of exit in your investment decision? Like, do you look at a company and see it as, this is an IPO company and we're going to make that happen? Or do you look at it and say, this is something that we want to sell a couple of years down the road and make that happen? Or does the exit sort of just happen based on the traction that you wouldn't you know, be able to predict and say like, oh, this is not big enough to be an IPO, so we might as well just sell and get rid of it? Or do you ever want to keep companies in your portfolio for a long time and just have them generate money on their own and have the value to equity? Never to have them in the portfolio just to generate money on their own because I would connote literally a dividend and, and we can't do that in all of our structures. But I think it is very life cycle different what you'll hear as answers. Some seed funds are okay going in saying, yeah, it's probably a 30 to $50 million kind of exit. You know, that's fine. We're getting in at, you know, a sub five pre-money valuation. So we can still make it 10x. Still not really going to move the needle a lot if that's really all you're betting on. Um, so I would say that it, virtually any any stage is always looking for enormous upside and market opportunities. Literally tip your head MF rule, right? Opportunity. Um, that being said, the job for the seed stage is also to have them incrementally grow in a healthy way and add the right amount of capital through their life cycle to optimize their opportunity, but not as the old days were done, old days, 90s, getting over, getting over the tips of your skis and getting overcapitalized where you have no chance but to really get crammed down, thrown out, and go bust, right? Which is not a good scenario either. It's a much more healthy environment, right? But the average venture exit is about $70 million, right? Just fact. Wonder, uh, statistical probability of selling for several hundred million, let alone getting to a billion, is, is literally minuscule. So you have to work through that progression in a healthy way. And, and you know, that, that's our attitude starting with us, but then it moves up. Question? It's really two questions. What are the key due diligence uh, questions that entrepreneurs should be asking about you as investors? And secondly, how relevant are you in the music tech sector? What are examples of startups that have been successful without venture money? Wow, that's a pretty tough question. I think on yeah, the due diligence side, <laughs> yeah. I'll answer that one because that's the easier one. Call our CEOs. Call the people that we've invested in before and talk to them. Say, hey, how is, how is this guy on your board? How did he help you with the company? Did he provide anything other than money? That's how you do your due diligence on us as uh, venture capitalists. Um, I forgot what the second question was. <laughs> Answering the first question, you know, people joke. They say, you know, did his check bounce? What is he good at? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, my comment before about think of an investor. There's probably three different buckets in our mind. There's uh, there's the downside situation of you just hired a cop who says come to my office once or twice a month, update me, get the hell out, and get those numbers to ramp. They're getting much fewer and far between these days, I, I think, across the world. And it really is. In the middle ground, you have somebody who's just really supportive. They cheerlead for you, but they really don't go beyond that. But that's okay. Having somebody who's, who's supportive and will sign consents when you need it and do things you need, that, that can be helpful at times. 
versus you know where you really want to get to is think of your investor as an extension of your founding team period you are marrying them and you cannot get divorced unless they fire you right that's the reality decide what you're looking for and seek that out and then your due diligence should be the same as ours in reverse which is confirming the value proposition that you're expecting because the marriage comment is a key one actually the other great statistic is the average venture capital investment it has had a longer life than the average marriage in the U.S. <laughs> well, and Larry, on that note, we are being told we have to shut her down. So uh, remember those three things and don't bug these guys unless you got them. <laughs>